Hello, friends, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Of Leadership. I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And on this episode, episode 86, we're going to be looking at teamwork. And I'm not going to, don't. Teamwork makes no, the dream work. No. We're going to have to restart now. I think we go with it. Okay. I, I, was, I was hoping we wouldn't come to the dream working. DreamWorks Studios. <laughs> they definitely aren't paying for anything for this podcast. Not yet anyways. No, definitely not. Uh, anyways, this is episode 86. John or Zach, any thoughts? 86? I'm sure there's like some sort of wide receiver out there. Well, this the Browns killer, Heinz Ward. Oh, gosh. Uh, anybody know Heinz Ward where he went to college? Mm, Temple. And what position he played? Um, running back. Former quarterback. Oh. oh. He was a Georgia Bulldog. Oh, interesting. University of Georgia. Uh, you know, I liked Heinz Ward from a player. He was just a guy who got things done. And, yep. uh, you know, the Browns didn't get things done for many years. <laughs> Classic. Classic Browns. Anyways, so... um. Before we get into teamwork, a uh, recap of last episode would have to do with self-care. Um, and John and I had discussed this a little bit. Um, self-care, you, you're, it's a culprit of over-functioning. You don't have enough time to do it. Or under-functioning, which you just don't also not have enough time to do it. <laughs> Too many Netflix shows to watch. <laughs> so go ahead, take a listen, um, especially in this age and where we're at with COVID and all sorts of things. Self-care is important. And we suggest you do something about it. I've heard a lot of pushback from Alex and I are both teachers, uh, teachers who are just tired of hearing about self-care and they feel like they're overburdened with too many things to do. And they think self-care is just this little cherry on the top that they've kind of almost treated with disdain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... You know, tonight's uh, podcast uh, hopefully will be helpful uh, with that aspect. We'll we'll tie in self care for sure. Yep. Um, and before we do anything else, and I apologize at the timing of this because this is becoming out in March, and I should have done this back in January. Um, but Zach did remind me. Well, he didn't remind me. He said in episode for New Year's resolutions last year to remind him of his New Year's resolution. So now. At this point in time, I'm reminding you of your New Year's resolution. How did it go, Zach? It was bad. <laughs> and I think we knew it was bad a year ago. I think we talked about it, if not two months after or less, and I had already forgotten the New Year's resolution that I had alluded to maybe having <laughs> in the original episode, which really shows the New Year's resolutions can change you, especially if they're not rooted in any lasting change. Mm, and in fact, I do remember because I went back and listened to it. You know what your New Year's resolution was? What was it? You didn't tell us what it was. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that that way you wouldn't know if you were disappointed or not. It, you know what it probably was? I was probably doing somewhere between 8 and 12 tiny habits, and I was going to see which one lasted, and then none of them lasted because I wasn't doing the one to three tiny mm -hmm. habits that are recommended. And mm -hmm. yeah, The ghost of B.J. Fogg. Mm -hmm. The ghost of B.J. Fogg. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, John, teamwork? Yeah, it's the concept of teamwork's been in my uh, head a, a bit lately, mostly from some reading I've been doing and some uh, coaching uh, conversations I've been having. And uh, 
uh, increasingly in work systems, people work in teams. The, the idea of the, the lone contractor figuring things out on their own is, is less, and there's more and more of people working in teams. And, of course, where you have teams, you have groups of people coming together, and it just increases the tension. So I thought uh, on this podcast episode, we'd look at effective teamwork and a few ideas on trying to get there. So what I thought we would do starting off is for the two of you to think about teams, not necessarily athletic teams. So Zach, we can broaden it out from your, uh, your varsity days uh, on the gridiron, but uh, think about teams, groups of people you've been part of that have gone particularly well or not gone particularly well. And what seemed to make a difference? I'll start with that question to you both. Um, so I can think of, so I've been doing student council now for, oh boy, uh, eight, nine years. And so I, I think of student council as a team. And I remember the beginning years were really difficult. Um, and now things are a lot better. And so, um, and I think the downfall of those teams in the beginning was, um, new guiding principles, some that weren't um, fully fleshed out because we didn't know how they were going to go um, with new rules and new things, uh, new ways of doing things and a resistance from team members not wanting to follow such things or having disdain but not necessarily bringing that disdain to us or to other leaders within the group. And so it just with this malaise or as we'll say in this podcast, chronic anxiety just continued to increase, um, which did bring up some, <laughs> some acute episodes um, of, I remember a student, one of the students yelling at me in front of everybody in class. Um, wh- what about, I do not remember. Um, I, I do remember it wasn't anything that made any sense, um, which always, you know, goes over so well in front of everybody. But um, I'm sure that was not just her, having that acute anxiety either or the other people within that team that um, made it difficult. So it was more of a transition from one leader to a different leader. And I think that's what made um, things difficult. That's helpful, Zach, what comes to mind as you think about good and bad with this. Alex sort of triggered a thought in me, especially some of the difficulties that my wife Abby has had in her first years of teaching. And then I sort of correlated that back to some internships I had is Teams really only work when you have an innate understanding of roles and responsibilities. And oftentimes, because of how people are interspersed into the workforce, whether that's as a teacher or an employee at a company, is a lot of that is like a soft understanding. It's a give and a take that's Mm -hmm. poorly communicated or intentionally not communicated um, for a variety of reasons. and I'm thinking uh, one of Abby's experiences just was tough because um, teaching in schools, especially charter schools, can be very demanding and they'll take what they can get. And if you don't learn to protect yourself, it can be very like damaging. Um, and in the same way in the business world, um, just really any job, if when you first join the workforce – if you care more about people's perception of you than about doing your job well um, and specifically asking questions to know what that job 
specifically entails and being willing to ask what might feel like something you should already know um, really does affect your perception of yourself in that job and your perception of yourself um, and others' perceptions of you because you're able to do the job better. Specifically, what I'm thinking of is I had a review at the end of an internship. And I think I've talked about this before. And they rated me on a couple of scales of one to five on how they thought I did. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, wow, I did about as well as I thought I did. And if it had been two months ago, it could have been exponentially better experience for both of us. And it wasn't a bad review, but it wasn't wasn't stellar. It's what you expect of an internship. And if they had just had the foresight to have that leadership, because that's actually where I learned a lot about the roles and the expectations that were expected of me, mm-hmm. and it was over. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that you brought about um, asking questions and, and what that looks like. I've And John's been part of this too, and I'm sure a, a lot of people have, is um, you have some sort of training or you have some sort of like, mm-hmm. it, it's not, it, you're not going to this place to do teamwork. You're going for a specific purpose. Um, and so in, in the in the school realm, it's professional development. I'm sure it's the same within other companies as well. Um, and I'm sure you've had a myriad of different feelings as you've gone to different professional developments. Some of them you're like, wow, that was really helpful. And some of them like really tanked. And I kind of see the teamwork within that too, and why some of them are good and some of them bad is that whole point of like the focus and the roles, which you talked about. Um, I specifically remember <laughs> going to one and a- I must have asked, what's the purpose of this meeting at least five times during the meeting and still never got an, a clear understanding of what it was after asking that many times. And it was just, it's one of those things where it was just like, I don't, I don't know what to do. So like this whole day is kind of shot. So um, that just kind of sparked up in me when you talked about asking questions mm-hmm. and having some sort of roles. And so I thought I'd share that piece. So I appreciate your thinking. Two things come to mind. One is no vision. And the second one is changing vision. So Zach, you spoke about, you know, the, the review and, and just some piecemeal conversations that don't seem to have any cohesiveness to it. Um, So I think effective teams start with having a vision, a sense of direction of where we're going. And one of the challenging parts of this is many individuals that listen to this podcast might be leading a team, but they're what might be loosely called a middle manager. So they're being asked to... um, engage in a conversation with the team about some topic. And unless the vision from above has been really crystal clear, it looks like what you were saying, Alex, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's this about? So I think of clear vision, which I Googled it before we started the podcast, but it's just the general sense of direction where we're going to, where we're heading from that come specific guiding principles that are more subject specific that support that vision. And then from there you have the training, you have the, the procedures, you have the policies that flow from that. But I think what makes many teams difficult is that doesn't happen um, where the vision is either not given. And so people are just kind of floundering and each and every meeting is just a piecemeal type 
program that doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason, and it leads to can lead to a lot of cynicism. So first, I think not having a vision makes people confused. And even though if I would ask a leader if the people really understand what they're supposed to do, they would say, well, sure, I've talked to them about this before. But oftentimes you interview people and they really don't know. I would... So from a biological end, since that's my background, I think of um, no vision this way. So you have a field and you clear off the field, you burn it, whatever, right? Then you have nothing there. And if you had no vision for that field, the things that are going to be entering first are going to be your invasive species. Mm-hmm. And so I think of it in a, in a teamwork state is that who's going to now drive the vision for that day or for that teamwork? It's going to be your loudest most brash, usually people within the group, maybe the ones that are the least differentiated from your group that then could lead that. Now you might have some really well differentiated people within that group too, but with that chronic anxiety sitting there, I just wonder if it, 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 it breeds a place where you're going to have more discord and also more like not knowing what to do, but, but leadership that's very confusing and led by people you probably don't want to be leading those things. Mm. Yeah, you're sort of led by the loudest voice, and that may not necessarily align with whatever the supposed vision ought to be. And it literally becomes nothing. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get any, there's there's zero anything going on. Well, so much like a field, like when you do that, the, the reason why you would clear a field and burn it out is to bring back new life. And when you bring invasive species, now you're actually literally taking life away from the land and putting it in those species, and, it, and nothing's happening. Yeah, I, I think that the idea of no vision leads to a competition of ideas. And part of the podcast is going to give some techniques. And, and one of them is to look at the difference between discussion and dialogue. And when you have no vision, then you simply have a battle of ideas, a back and forth. And eventually somebody wins or everybody gives up and nothing really happens, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So no vision. And then the other one that got me thinking was the changing of the vision. You mentioned going from one vision or one way of thinking to a different way of thinking. And uh, I would say that every organization, every team has a vision. And sometimes the vision is don't rock the boat. That's the direction we're heading, which is like not making people uncomfortable not saying that's a great vision, but I think every team has a vision of some kind, even if it's not stated, the leader is trying to take the group in a general direction. And oftentimes it's trying not to rock the boat. Mm. That can be that case. But when a leader decides to change the direction, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens, and we've talked about this before in this podcast is that systems like what's comfortable. They like, here's the word homeostasis. And when a leader comes in to change that, there's going to be automatic pushback by some. And even if the vision's a better one, there's going to be some natural resistance to that. And how the leader responds to that resistance makes a really big difference. Um, so I saw no vision, and then I saw the idea of um, the changing vision and how that leads to disruption in a particular system. So I want to get into the first technique that I think is really, really useful, and that's looking at the difference between discussion and dialogue, discussion and dialogue. And in my view, being able to separate the two of these 
any effective team meeting has both of these characteristics. There is time for discussion and there's time for dialogue, but understanding the difference between the two of them is really, really useful. I want to start with uh, discussion. Okay, discussion. So the root word for discussion is the same root word as the word concussion. So you think of somebody getting a concussion, their brain gets rattled around in their you know, head back and forth, back and forth. So that, the root word of that really does mean back and forth. Um, it usually results in a winner and a loser. So if you think about a discussion, uh, it's typically different people sharing what they think the best thing to do is. And then there's conversations back and forth. Uh, people carve out their position of why they think it's important, and then a decision is made. So I'm wondering, in the workplace that you're in, when would discussion be appropriate, where people share their opinions back and forth, maybe you vote, I don't know, but eventually you have a winning choice, and it seems like that's the best form of collaboration is the discussion model. Can you think of an example where discussion would make sense? I'm thinking of vision as an interplay of objective and I'll call it relational goals, but the way in which we're going to do things and what exactly we're going to accomplish, it's some sort of interplay between those two things. Would you say that's correct, John? Uh, Yeah, an effective vision for sure, yes. Okay, so in my mind then, uh, a discussion is specifically as it relates to needing to firm up something along the lines as it relates to one of those two specifically in a way that you need that to proceed to accomplish your vision, um, such as meeting the quarterly sales goals, like we are going to change this or do that. So you're saying a, a procedure to reach a particular goal that we've established uh, this is what we're going to decide to do. We have $100,000 in the marketing budget. We're going to spend that money on this in order yep. to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. Limited resources of some kind. Yeah, so so I think that's a helpful look. We have to decide this today, And for example. And so it's in pursuit of a particular vision that we've all agreed on, then you can have a discussion about that. Where things get difficult is when there's not a particular vision at all. And so what what tends to happen is people use the the discussion strategy where dialogue is a little bit more appropriate. So let's talk a little bit about uh, effective dialogue and what it is. So whereas a discussion is getting to an answer, it's really looking at the answer, dialogue is actually reframing the question of trying to explore complex issues and complex topics, complex, uh, complex topics. And if you think about it, each of us brings with us to a particular meeting uh, a certain set of assumptions, a certain set of truths. And oftentimes those truths um, it, that we have inform decisions that we make that may in fact not be best for us. For example, um, let's say, and I'm using the education example, that we have a policy that we will accept all late work up until the end of the quarter. So that's a decision that we've made. I believe it's best for kids that we have this. Kids are going through difficulties, so on and so forth. And so 
in a, in a in a discussion setting, what you would have is you would have a person saying why they think this is the right thing. Somebody else would say, that's a terrible idea. What are we teaching kids? They're not responsible, et cetera, et cetera. But dialogue, what dialogue does is it takes assumptions and it says, my assumption that I have about whatever the topic is can be questioned and it can be observed. And everybody's willing to share their assumption about a particular topic and allow for questioning and observation. And from this, you can start to develop a shared vision because one thing that happens oftentimes is leaders themselves say, this is the direction we're going, this is what we're about, and everybody kind of adopts it, you know, kind of meekly. But developing vision is best done when it's a collaborative process and dialogue is how you get there. And it really starts with pretty basic about whatever topic we're talking about, that everybody shares the assumption that they have about this particular topic. And I invite you to question it, and I invite you to observe it. And each person does that. And over time, what happens is individuals uh, are able to then flesh out complex topics and get to a more shared vision that they then can use to inform trainings, policies, and procedures going forward. So that's the first salvo that I have about discussion versus dialogue. So I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on the difference between the two of those. Yeah, I, I think um, dialogue, uh, I just wonder how scary that sounds to some people, you know, yeah, to it, try to lead something such as that. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think if you're, your, your goal is control and knowing where the conversation is going to go... Um, then dialogue is pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. But without it, what do you, what else do you have? Mm-hmm. You have a battle of ideas back and forth. You have people not saying what they really believe, what they really think. You have passive compliance and you have team meetings that are largely ineffectual. Well, and I think two key aspects of dialogue specifically involve the the formation of assumptions in words. You have to be able to communicate those. And I think that's helpful. I think oftentimes the other part is inviting people to speak. If we invite people to speak, but we haven't clearly defined parameters for what we're speaking about, um, and oftentimes what we need to speak about is not the topic itself, but the assumptions that we haven't even realized that are a part of that. But unless we invite people into that, and with clearly stated assumptions or at least the ability to point out assumptions, right? Because a negative reaction can shut down that whole dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, the assumption piece is, 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 a, is a key one. Um, there are two aspects for effective dialogue. And one of those, Zach, you touched on is that everybody must suspend their assumptions but hold them up for questioning and observation. So by suspending assumptions, what that refers to is, I'm not wedded to this idea as being the truth about whatever the policy is, but this is what I assume about this, and I state it, and I invite people to question and observe it. The second thing that's key for um, effective dialogue is that everybody must view the other one as an equal colleague. So oftentimes in a meeting, you have the leader in charge, whether it's a a facilitator, could be an administrator, doesn't matter. But the more hierarchy have in a group of people, the harder it is to do this. 
because the person that's the lowest on the totem pole is really afraid to say what they think because the boss is there. So the, the person in charge really has to set the tone that all statements are open for questioning and observing. And setting that tone is really, really key. And unless that happens, dialogue is next to impossible. Yeah. And I would say that that mediation book that we read Mm -hmm. a while ago has really left an impact on me specifically because as it pertains to this dialogue, you really need to, as the leader of that situation, mediate between the louder voices and the softer voices, or else um, you can tend to have an unequal weight where people who might be equipped to add extra value to a conversation are either being spoken over unintentionally, right? Like this is not something that most people who have loud voices tend to do um, or intend to do, but it's something that they do tend to. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, John, I don't know exactly where you're going with this, but I imagine number one, this takes some time, but I also would, would think that whoever's leading this. And I say that a little bit loosely because um, if you're having a mediator, if there's equalness involved in all that, then whoever's in charge of this also needs to be somebody who's willing to actually do the dialogue. That's exactly right. Yeah. that They have to be part of the process and maybe even have to go first about here's my assumption and stating what it is. And uh, so, for example, uh, I teach a number of AP courses, which are all tested with no notes, at least in non-pandemic times. But prior to this, three or four years ago, I started going to open note tests for all my tests in class, even though the AP exam is not open note. And I believe that that's the best way to prepare students. Now, that's my assumption. And when I share that at my AP workshops, people say to me, so you're telling me you're preparing a kid for a no-note test by yet letting them use notes? That seems like a crazy idea. So that's the idea of saying, this is how I do things. Tell me what I'm missing, and then I'll share my thinking. And it's a way to get to a shared understanding. The goal isn't to get everyone to agree, like, okay, this is the policy we're all going to adopt. But the goal is for each person to be invited to give their best thinking about this topic to question that assumption. And then you're right. It takes, it takes time. Uh, it takes time to do, to get to the shared understanding, but the, the momentum that can be built in a team by doing this allows for situations that come up in that team in the future to go just that much better. I think there's certainly some question, uh, for that. So I, I'm going to push back a little bit here. Yeah. So, um, because I've been in some of these, I felt like they were supposed to be dialogue type teamwork groups, like where you're just supposed to come up with something, but then you don't, after you're done with it, you don't know where anything went with it. And it seems like it just went to whoever was in charge and then they just made the decision based off of the dialogue or they already had a decision made, you know? Um, and maybe that's the, maybe that's what we just talked about where it was like, well, if the leaders aren't really involved, Um, Yeah, I don't know. And and dialogue is really not designed to get to... The purpose of dialogue is not to get to consensus that we all agree on this policy. Mm -hmm. That's discussion. The purpose of dialogue is for people to unpack the complexity of this issue. So after collaboration, they can see the issue a bit differently. And maybe you come to my side, maybe you don't, but that's really not the issue. Mm -hmm. The importance is that we have a conversation where we listen, we question, and we think about things in a collaborative way. 
And then it increases the likelihood that I'll be open to your idea and you'll be open to my idea. And it kind of broadens the the, the field of vision uh, a bit more than otherwise would be. But I don't think the goal necessarily is for everyone to adopt that same actual policy. Because hmm. um, otherwise, I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's, um, a, a, a possible outcome always to do that, nor do I think it should be forced necessarily. And I think it play, it's worth noting that sometimes people blend the lines between discussion and dialogue such that a leader might feel anxious that there isn't a voice on a particular issue that um, they haven't heard what people below them are saying, maybe because of the dysfunction of a system. And what they do is they try to dialogue about something that they frame something as a dialogue that's really a discussion. And what that does is that seems in the moment to add voices on an issue, but later creates tension because like you're saying, Alex, the leader, someone has to take responsibility for a decision and a direction for the vision. And if that happens in this muddy waters, then what you have is stepped on feelings where where assumptions were being suspended. Suddenly they're back in and someone's made a decision. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for the leader to say, look, this is the process we're going to go through. But at the end of the meeting, we have to decide on this policy. We have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So I think the dialogue piece is how you get there. But maybe you have a vote. Maybe the leader listens to all the input and makes a decision. I don't know how it's done. Mm-hmm. Depends on the group. But yeah, there might be a, a something where it's not left out there to each person decide on their own how they're going to do a particular policy. But I think if the leader is clear up front by saying at the end, we have to decide on which way we're going with this. And that way people aren't surprised. I think most people feel are okay with going with a decision that they don't agree with if they feel like they had a chance to voice their thoughts and ideas. And I think the dialogue, again, this is what I believe. This is what I'm thinking. I invite you to pick it apart. And if each person does that, I think it can then allow a person to be more likely to accept the will of whoever, even if it's not something that they particularly supported, if a decision has to be made. I, I do find this a bit interesting of why we have issues with dialogue. You know, why why aren't we doing dialogue? And I do wonder if it's because of partly because of our culture. Um, us always wanting to come to a resolution, always wanting to get to the next step. What what kind, what is the next bridge we're like? What is the next thing? And this open dialogue of just having a conversation of you know bring up a topic and hey, what do you guys do with this? Is is some ways can be difficult because people don't see why it's helpful or where it's going to take them or where it's going to lead them, and, and and I don't know if that's because it's unpracticed or if it's like culturally like well we just this isn't I've got other things to do and like I can check other things off the list and this this open dialogue think session or like if that's if that's what we're calling out without doing a decision at the end I'm not sure what I'm getting out of this and and I don't know if that's just not well established within our culture or if it's you know you know what I'm saying I do I would say that it's people not suspending um, their assumptions. I would say that mm. we're in a society where we either cannot clearly articulate ourselves mm. or what we would claim to be persuasion, which is the apparent suspension of assumptions to 
say, I am holding both of these in equal weight, and this is why you should believe mine over yours, but I'm open to you. That's kind of what we hope rhetoric and persuasion would lead you to believe. Rather, what we end up saying is mine is right, and let me tell you why, which is more, it's more of a lecture than a discourse with the perception of curiosity mm-hmm. rather than the true collaboration that is needed for a curious dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reason that dialogue is resisted by some is the ambiguity of it. I, I think it's, when you think of anxious systems, they cling to safety over risk. So it's a riskier way to go about a decision. Uh, I also think that there's a push for togetherness. So if we can, at the end of the meeting, think we all agree on this, it makes us feel better. We feel like we're a cohesive team, even though that's not true. It may be an illusion of togetherness. So, mm. so I think anxious systems tend to um, move more towards discussion on all issues, uh, but I don't know that innovative solutions are done primarily through the lens of discussion. Matter of fact, I know it's not. It's not. So that's the first part, uh, and that's more about the issue. Like, here's practically a way to look at issues. Uh, This discussion tonight and dialogue tonight, there's (laughs) all this information tonight. (laughs) Uh, comes from the work of Peter Senji, and he's written several books, but his most famous book is called The Fifth Discipline, The Fifth Discipline, and he talks about systems and how systems impact teams. And we, of course, teach systems in Bowen Family Systems Theory, and it's the idea of dialogue versus discussion, looking at issues. The second aspect that, that makes teams really difficult to function is deals with relationships and how the leader of a group perceives other people in the group. And so the second technique, so the first one was more about discussion versus dialogue, dealing with issues. This one deals with relationships and it's called left-hand column thinking, left-hand column thinking. So let's imagine a T-chart. So I want you to think about, so to, to our listeners, this is true in any family, workplace, doesn't matter. I want you to think about a particular person that you have some type of conflict with that you don't particularly get along with, and you've had some interactions with them that have not been positive. So take a sheet of paper, make two columns left and right. Let's start in the right hand, then we get to the left-hand column thinking, which really is the key. So the right-hand column is really what you do is you write down a dialogue that you have, you and somebody else. And I've used this with some people that I coach where actually they've talked about almost every coaching situation I have is a complaint about somebody else. And so I have them write out the dialogue. What did you say? What did they say? What did you say? What did they say? Back and forth. And if there's somebody else involved in the conversation, what did the third person say? So they're actually scripting out everything that was said. That's the right-hand column. In the left-hand column, what I ask them to do is two things. I say, I want you to think about what you were thinking about during that dialogue. I want you to write that out. And so they start to write out what they were thinking as this dialogue was taking place. I then ask them to say, it's no doubt contentious stuff on the right-hand side. You start ruminating about it. You start thinking about it. So I want you to also write down after you you, this took place and you thought about it and ruminated about it, what else were you thinking? And they write out that on the left-hand column. What that left-hand column is, is assumptions. It's assumptions about that person. And then I ask them to go through each of those assumptions and I ask them this simple question, is this true? And most of the time, it's either half true or not true at all. But here's the key. The way a leader thinks of assumptions in their head 
all of us, the way we see assumptions determines our path forward. We're actually making decisions on faulty information. So I go back to the issues of suspending assumptions, and it, it dovetails right into this. With every issue or every relationship, if we can question our assumptions, maybe through a coach or through dialogue with somebody else, it allows us to see that person a bit differently and approach them in a different manner. Because my belief is that relationships fracture partly because of the leader's response to false assumptions. And that left-hand column thinking is a way to kind of flesh out those assumptions. So that's the relationship piece that I think is valuable. I'm curious on your guys' feedback on that. So in practical speaking, John, do you see people who are either so aware of their left-hand thinking, left-column thinking, or are disciplined enough in how they think. I don't know if that's the right word, but they're either aware enough of it or they've set up such good habits in the way that they communicate, and I don't know if this is even possible, that they don't fall prey to assumptions such that they're mostly half-truths or not true. That's almost never true. Almost always individuals are not aware of their assumptions at all. And it's only until somebody asks them to write that out because they have a script in their head. They have a narrative in their head that supports their belief. And almost always it's partially true or like almost all untrue. Sorry, partially false or almost totally false. Um, and this is where leaders get into trouble is this is how people distance from one another. Um, almost every program that a leader needs to carry out, they need other people to actually do it help them carry it out. But when this assumption is built in, which is typically not true, it leads to distance between parties and things just fall apart. So I think most leaders are completely unaware of their assumptions. I mean, and even just under a cursory reflection, I can see how a lot of my interactions with other people who I am contentious with, not with those people, but conversations about those people with whom I'm contentious, I'm actually propagating a narrative where I'm likely embellishing what would be left-hand column thinking. That's right. Yeah, I, I see it um, specifically even within my marriage where you're, like, especially since I'm, I'm new into marriage, like assuming that, that the other person would want this type of thing, so I'm going to push the dialogue. I end up doing that a lot with, I, I think people, and I think a lot of people probably do that too because it makes the conversations go easier because now you're talking about something they want to talk about. And so you can kind of breeze over some things. And so, um, but in the, at the same time that might make those easier, but you're also devoiding it of how you truly feel. And then that, and, and with that, you're not really getting, I don't know, to, to a growth aspect, I guess. Well, that would even be the lack of vision. You're propagating a lack of your own mm -hmm. vision as it relates to whatever relationship you're engaging in. Mm hmm yeah. And I, and I think there is a time and place to where you, <laughs> I sure, certainly wouldn't want to just say, well, you just have real conversations all the time, right? I mean, there's certain times where you bring up the sports or the whatever sure. and the, the show and you're just trying to have a good conversation just because you don't, you've got 15 other things on your plate. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So many leaders in teams get stuck. And so when you're stuck as a leader, Think about 
what's a discussion versus a dialogue? What does that look like? Again, Peter Senji's work on Fifth Discipline has several chapters on effective teamwork, which is where this comes from. And then the relational piece, looking at specific factual information and then what you are thinking about those facts that actually might be flawed, that may be making that relationship worse because of your own reaction to it. I think those two things for leaders are really, really helpful to making effective teams. All right. So teamwork, it is, what, what is, no, we're not saying it. No, don't, no, don't, don't do it. Um, and we'll cut that part. <laughs> and then Alex coming back in with whatever he's about to say. This um, is all being cut now. Why is it being cut? Because you don't want us to say the title, right? <laughs> no. He, he didn't want to say dream work. Dang it. Now he said it and I, I blame you. Were, <laughs> I, we're cutting all this. <laughs> See, I thought you were trying not to say the title of our episode. No, that. no. Teamwork is hard, See, but being Cuddle. alone is terrible. Mm-hmm. No, that's not exactly where I was going. But <laughs> anyways, so teamwork, some good Things here, techniquey type deals, kind of. I mean, this podcast doesn't really do a whole lot of techniquey stuff, but a couple things here for you to chew on and maybe have inner dialogue about, perhaps, <laughs> but not too much to you're making assumptions of other people. And I just want to touch back on a final technique that, you know, I've been truly impacted by you, Alex, on is if you are not setting agendas for your meeting... If you do not have a vision for your meaning, I will resent you for that. <laughs> I was so spoiled at one of my earlier jobs that, that had agendas. And Alex talked once about how if he went to a meeting without an agenda, that 99% of the time it was worthless. Mm. And let me tell you, I have come to resent people now that I am so aware of that and how many meetings are so pitifully, painfully just non-productive. Mm -hmm. And that's a vision thing. Yep. Have some vision. Do the work. Yep. Guiding principles start with you, then they, then they flow out into your team. Really. And I think dialogue is, is what helps that vision be a shared vision. Mm-hmm. Because that vision can be, you know, manipulated and refined and that's all part of the process. Great. And maybe just like self-care, you know, maybe dialogue should be part of your team care. Team care. Team care. Wonderful. Is this like an 80s? Seems like something. (laughs) Team care bear. Uh Perfect. So thank you for finding us on any platform that you're looking at. If you want to get a hold of us, you go to ofleadership.com or of leadership at gmail.com. Contact us there or through Facebook. We're on Twitter. Yeah, we do some social media things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, but really our meaty conversations happen over email. As all of you fans just reach out and share your hearts with us. Yes. We appreciate that. Thank you, Nigeria. And um, thank you, Jetler, for your music. Sick beats. Mm-hmm. And with that, I'm Alex. I'm John. And I'm Zach. And we'll see you around. See you around. Adios. Adios.